So we're in week five. The story so far has been to believe or not to believe, that believing is a choice um, that's founded on reasonable certainty. And then um, in the following week, we talked a little bit about who is Jesus and giving some historical evidence that a man named Jesus of Nazareth most likely did walk the face of the earth um, and and so on. Um, and then after that, we talked about humanity and what does it mean to be act, actually to be human um, and that our deepest and most real authentic humanity is revealed um, in the humanity that we were created to live, uh, but we'd never seen that. It's like almost trying to put a puzzle back together when you don't know what it looks like. So Jesus himself is born in a manger and lives and becomes human and comes and joins us on earth to be that icon, that model um, that we can then model our humanity um, based on and so much more and that brings us to this week where we're talking about salvation and when we say the word salvation people frequently kind of ask the question to be saved well to be saved from what the the, the answer is essentially quite simple and also quite complex um, really as we study these things and get to know these things more and more deeply, we really become much more and more comfortable with ambiguity, with the fact that we don't actually know. We actually don't know very much. Um, we know a few things though. We know that things are not as they ought to be. And we talked a little bit about this last week. Um, if you've ever, you know, I hope not for you, uh, but had to um, part with a loved one. Um, if you've ever had to part um, ways in death at a funeral or something with a loved one or um, maybe not so serious but if you've if you've dropped a loved one off at the airport uh, or and, and and seen them travel you know permanently they're moving away from home or older brother or sisters moving moving away from home or something like that someone you dearly love the 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 pain of parting is so obviously wrong there's something that just is, is not right about that, right? Um, and then there's many other things that when we look at our world, we feel that are just wrong. Um, sickness, death, uh, illness, war, uh, all these different kinds of things. We look at these things and we feel that it's impossible that this is what is supposed to be, that this is the best it could be. There, there must be, there must be something else. The, it, it begs the question that this must be a departure from some kind of, you know, original beauty. And as we look at the world, we, we see tons of beauty. There's lots of beauty in the world. There's not only all these negative things, but there's also lots of beauty. But oftentimes the beauty is tarnished by something else, tarnished by selfishness, tarnished by greed, tarnished by the touch of humanity, not glorifying the beauty that is already there, but almost, almost exploiting it. And that is what we wish to be saved. That is what we wish to be saved for, from. The classic answer when someone asks, you know, to be saved, to be saved from what? That you would hear uh, if you walk through Dundas Square here in Toronto um, and talked with people, you know, the answer you would probably get is saved 
from sin. But that's actually a relatively new concept, new in the sense that it at least didn't exist for the first thousand years of Christianity. For the first thousand years of Christianity, the answer would have been, the obvious answer would have been to be saved from death. Because the, the, the whole problem of humanity, our whole pro, the pro, whole problem of humanity is death. And um, the word f uh, for sin in ancient languages is hamartia, which means to miss the mark. Um, and it's not so much like a moral term or a, or a term of guilt uh, or, or, or legal term, but just simply not to be directly in the bullseye. So I don't know how many of you here um, uh, play uh, darts or, uh, or have done some archery. You could probably really relate to this. And I've done a bit of both and I can tell you I almost never hit the bullseye. Maybe something that um, that you're more familiar with, maybe something that's a little bit more common is playing pool. Um, and again, you're aiming for a target and being off by just a little bit is, isn't good enough, right? And even like, and if you're playing on the last ball, you're playing on the eight ball and you call it on the top pocket and you shoot and you get it in the side, you lose, right? And even if it's off by just a hair, it missed the mark. And so much of what we look at in society today and so much of what we look in, at in the world today misses the mark. And the greatest travesty, the greatest, the, 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 the ultimate enemy is death. And so last week we were talking about how God says, let us create man in our image and our likeness. And he creates, he creates humanity in the perfect likeness and image of himself. And through this missing the mark, through a rupture of the trust relationship between humanity and God, all of a sudden, this beautiful image is distorted. Um, a term that, uh, that, that one of the uh, early church fathers likes to use is, he says, and as, as God has just created this most magnificent creation, and he looks at it and he says, it is very good. He sees it to start to unravel. You know, the, the, the weather is changing and it's, we're, we're getting into sweater weather. This is like my favorite season where it's, you know, it's warm enough to just wear a sweater. You don't need to wear a big heavy coat. Um, and, and it's great because I get to get my sweater collection out and I love it. And you ever been, you put on a sweater for the first time in the season, you find a little string and you pull it, right? And it starts to unravel. And you're like, oh my God, no, 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 right? <laughs> Quickly you get like a needle and thread or something and you sew it up or, or uh, whatever to keep it, to prevent it from unraveling. God sees his most, his most magnificent creation unraveling before his eyes. It was supposed to be, it was supposed to be a direct reflection of the endless love of God and progress and evolve towards becoming the, the to becoming exactly like God through, through God's grace, through his free gift. But rather than that, it devolves into selfishness, into greed, in, into blame and ultimately into murder and into death. And God sees his most magnificent creation unraveling and all of a sudden there's a dilemma, what, what to do. And a lot of us, myself included, see this 
see this in our in in our own selves it's so easy to pick up a bad habit it's so easy to do something once and then say you know it's just this once and then um, and then and then it keeps going and our humanity is unraveling and the image that was originally created is distorted now to be very clear um, what we're talking about here is not morality it's not about right and wrong it's about life and death it's really really not about right and wrong um, it's really about wholeness it's about health it's about it's about completely being alive and being able to live the fullness of the potential of our humanity and an excellent example of this is a, um, a story um, in the life of Jesus um, Jesus is with his 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 followers and his friends and they they catch a woman in the act of adultery and uh, she's married but she's not sleeping with someone who is her husband and they catch her in the act and they grab her and they bring her and they throw her on the ground before Jesus and they ask him what do you say we should do with her and according to the law of Moses she should be put to death she should be stoned but what do you say teacher sort of to kind of to, to try to trap him and Jesus kneels down on the ground and starts writing in the sand and and many commentators believe that he was writing the sins of all of the people that were there in the sand and then he stands up quietly and says he who of you is without sin let him throw the first stone and each person they're holding their rocks and they're ready and they're ready to give it to this woman and they're get ready to and one by one they drop their stones and they walk away and they they drop their stones and they and they, and they walk away there's no sense of morality Jesus then speaks to the woman she, he says to her where are those condemners of yours and she says nowhere my lord and he says to her neither do I condemn you go and sin no more neither do I condemn you go and sin no more in fact Jesus himself says I did not come to condemn the world but to save the world and elsewhere he says I did not come to judge the world but to save the world so it's not a question of morality it's not a question of is this a good woman or a bad woman it's a question of <coughs> is this woman living out the fullness of her humanity or is she living some fragmented distorted life between one man who's her husband and another lover and is there more is there a more whole, healthy, complete life that could be lived? A great example of this is that if sin is then not, not morality, not guilt, there's no sense of guilt um, in it, then, then what is it? It's disease. A, a great way of understanding this is, would anybody see this child uh, with, with cancer in hospital and, and attribute guilt to them? No, of course not. And were they an adult? Neither. And in, in my past life as a doctor, there's no sense of, of, uh, of, of morality in medicine in terms of looking at the patient as a good person or a bad person. The patient is a person with an illness and they need to be treated. And we happen to have the treatment and so we should just treat them. And that's it. Regardless of whether they incurred this illness of their own, by their own doing or not, that that's completely that's completely irrelevant. P 
people who are sick need to be treated. And that's just about the end of, of the discussion um, about that. So we, we really understand we really understand the distrust, the, the rupture of the relationship with God as sin, as, as missing the mark. It's, that's just not how it was supposed to be. That generates this cascade of fallenness. And that is what we look to be saved from. Oftentimes called sin, but really it's a process of death. And what does, what's the, the essence of this? What's the essence of the fall? What's the essence of the departure from God? It's selfishness. It's me, myself, and I. It's looking out for number one. It's not seeing the person who's next to me. So many times, you know, I'm guilty of being on the streetcar uh, or, or wherever, you know, and I'll be answering messages, I'll be doing my thing, and then I'll notice somebody older than me or somebody pregnant or somebody whatever standing right in front of me. And I'll think to myself, oh my goodness, I'll jump out of my seat and offer them my seat. But how long has this person been standing there so wrapped up in ourselves and in our own, in our own lives? We've disconnected from the rest of humanity and similarly disconnected from God. There's a rupture of that relationship. And this leads to self-destructive behaviors, right? This leads to a humanity which is destroying itself. And I could list, you know, the, 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 the video that we showed for fun, um, it talked about addictions, right? And they come in all kinds of different varieties and flavors, from things that are socially acceptable, like overeating, to things that are much less socially acceptable. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, these are all these are all things we do to make ourselves feel better. Feel better from what? Wouldn't it be great if we could just be saved from the thing that, we are, that we're running away from? And these self-destructive behaviors lead to hurt, hurting others, hurting ourselves, the selfishness. And this hurt leads to a hardened heart. Our hearts harden, we become slower to trust. We become slower to love. We become slower to move towards the other. Become much more worried about ourselves. And the only reversal of this happens by being loved. And so God says, I love you. So God says, let me come and let me love you. We've talked a lot about icons because uh, they're just such great tools of communication. So an icon, for those of you who weren't here with us in previous weeks, is a visual depiction um, of something that is much greater or much, much deeper. Sort of like on your desktop, you'll have icons or in your taskbar at the bottom, you'll have icons. And you know, that icon is not the fullness of the application that's on your phone or, 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 or on, your, on, your, on your desktop, right? It's just it's just something which leads you to so much more. So this is an, an icon, and, and, and icons uh, all have titles. And the, the title of this icon is not the suffering servant or the, or, 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 or the, or the crucified Christ. Or it's, uh, it's actually called the bridegroom. Because here he is, right before being crucified, humiliated, stripped naked, and then they threw this red garment over him, gave him a 
a reed to hold in his hand and, and they bowed the knee to him and spat on him and called him your majesty, making fun, making fun of him, put a crown of thorns on his head. And it's called the bridegroom because here he is paying the bride price. In ancient times, and when I get to travel and, 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 and go um, serve overseas in, in rural areas in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, it's, it still exists there where, you know, to, to marry someone, um, the groom pays a bride price. He pays a price to the father of, of the bride, you know. And here's Christ paying the price to love us. Jesus himself, when he's the day before, before he's crucified, is speaking with his friends and his followers. And he says to them, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Many of you, uh, many of you here are, 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 are my friends. And uh, uh, many of you, I've lent you my car. Um, someone will be, um, I don't know, buying something from Ikea or something and they'll need an SUV. And I'm like, yeah, sure, here, here you go. And I'll give you my keys, right? Because you're my friend, I trust you. Um, if I, uh, you know, want to go up a level, I don't know, I might give you the keys to my house. If I wanted to trust you with the, the dearest, most precious thing to me in the world, I would, I would ask you to look after my children. But Jesus says, the greatest gift you can give to somebody is your life. And so he does. And he becomes the ultimate icon, the ultimate representation of love. And what Jesus is talking about here is an exchange. He says, I'll tell you what, your heart is hardened. You've incurred a lot of hurts in this life. You've been burdened and broken and hurt and all these things have happened. And when you look around you, you're not so sure that you see so much light at the end of the tunnel. Those glimmers here and there. I tell you what, let's exchange. Let's exchange your life for mine. And we'll talk more about that a little later and more at the end. And we find lots of examples of this. We find lots of examples of this in the, in the ancient Christians that are the underpinnings of Christianity. For example, about a couple of thousand years before um, Jesus, there was this guy called Abraham. Abraham really, really loved God and was really faithful to him. Abraham had only one son, which he had at a very late time in his life. And God wanting to show, wanting to reveal the faithfulness of Abraham puts Abraham to the test. Specifically says in scripture, God tested Abraham. Not that God didn't know what Abraham would do, but rather wishing to reveal the faithfulness of this person, to glorify him. Out of his love for Abraham, he wants to reveal Abraham's love for God. And so he tells him, take your only begotten son, Isaac. Take your only son, Isaac, and take him up on this mountain that I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice to me like slaughter him and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham bows his head and concedes and takes his son and carries the wood and so on and takes him up the mountain. They get to the top of the mountain and he ties his son up and his son says, Dad, 
we have the wood, we have the fire, we have the knife, where is the offering? And Abraham says to his son, God will provide. And he takes his son and he puts him, they built a little altar together, he puts him on the altar. And an angel appears and holds Abraham, Abraham's arm back and tells him, God has seen your faithfulness and he has provided for himself a sacrifice. And they see, they see a ram caught by its horns in a thicket and they offer that instead. Unending faithfulness. And the message is not that this is the faithfulness of Abraham to God. That's one message. But the much deeper message is if, if Abraham is that faithful to God, how faithful was God to Abraham to generate that kind of faithfulness in Abraham? If you're following with us in your little handbooks, you're welcome to, you don't have to. We're sort of on page 30 and 31. Um, and there's many other New Testament models of salvation. There's many different perspectives, and they all kind of complete the picture. But the one, the one that, that we um, tend to, to refer back to and back to and back to is this exchange, of, this exchange of lives, Christ giving us his life and, and him taking ours instead, him taking our death and him giving us his life. And... Another, another example which is, often, um, which is often given or another model of salvation is the model of sacrifice. Jesus accepts death for himself and sacrifices himself that he might die for us, that we might have life. And the, uh, the typical icon for that is of Jesus on the cross. And you'll notice in this, in this icon of Jesus on the cross, again, icons are sort of visual representations. They're not historically accurate. They're not meant to be. They're meant to tell, they're meant to tell a story, tell a message. The key message here is that in Jesus' last and final public appearance, his arms are stretched wide open to receive you and to receive me. Another model that's often referred to is the ultimate lover that he is this 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 relentless lover who loves humanity and refuses refuses to give up refuses to let go and we kind of talked a little bit about that last week until finally until finally he accepts us into his wide open arms in heaven another example um, now on to page 31 is Christ the final champion final champion in what sense in that he overcomes the final challenge you know Benjamin Franklin says there's two things and only two that are certain in life death and taxes right and so that ultimate that ultimate end death Jesus accepts to go through it with us and to be victorious over it. And this is an icon we showed last week where Jesus is standing on the two doors of Hades and the doors of death, and he's victorious and he's a victor. The word salvation, by the way, in ancient languages is actually synonymous with the word victory. And the name Jesus that was given to Joseph and Mary to name 
their, the, the, you know, Mary's baby boy, when he would be born, that was given by the angel Jesus. Actually, Yeshua actually means save us or savior. And so we find that the word, the word victor or victory is, is almost synonymous in ancient languages. And in early Christianity and the first few centuries would have, would have been, salvation and victory would have been understood as one and the same. Victory over death, victory over evil, victory over selfishness, victory over hatred through the sacrifice and love of Christ and of God. So if we couldn't go to God, God says, let me come to you. Last week, we talked about how we chose death. Humanity chose death. Humanity chose this process of death. God, who is life, who is the source of life, says, if you chose death, I choose it too. If you choose to go through death, I'll hold your hand and I will go through it with you until we come out on the other side. So in summary, our understanding of salvation is pretty, pretty simple. And it's kind of, you can find it in these basic, in these basic points. One thing is that we believe that our salvation is a fundamental change of the person. It's not a feeling. It's not a thought. There's other, there's other models of salvation of Christ, the teacher comes to reveal to us the Father. That's true. It's true, but incomplete. Because that would mean a change in the mind only. Whereas, whereas our belief is that we're changed fundamentally down to, down to the very essence of what we are as human beings when we believe in Him. It's not just our mind or our emotions or our worldview. Another really important point is that it's us who changes, not God. It's not that God has, is now sees us with favor where previously he didn't see us with favor. It's not that now we've become acceptable before God where previously we weren't. God's perspective changes. No, it's we change. We go from being dead to alive. We go from having no potential to having the potential for everlasting life. Another really important point in all the things we've discussed is that Christ is in no way separate from the Father or the Holy Spirit in all of this. There's no sense of separation between the Father and the Son in all of the things we've discussed so far. And lastly, is that it's, it's not one isolated event in the life of Christ. For example, his crucifixion or his resurrection or that completes, that causes our salvation. It's the whole life of Christ. It's his becoming human and then accepting the entirety of the human experience, which includes death. But rather than dying and staying dead, he dies and he rises again proving that he has victory over death. We'll finish with a story. It's just a, uh, I don't know if it's a true story, but it's a story I've heard from multiple different sources. So I, I don't, I couldn't tr trace its original roots. About two brothers, twin brothers. And um, they grew up, they were really good friends. And, and, and as they continued to grow, maybe go to high school or so on, their friend groups kind of changed. 
One became more of a bit of bit more of a bookworm. The other one, you know, kind of was a bit more street smart, and one spent more of his time in the library, and the other one a bit more of his time on the streets. As they grew, they changed. One of them went on to carry on with his life and get a job and so on. Another one got caught up in a life of crime and some disorder and, and so on. One day, the, the, the brother who is caught up in the life of crime and so on finds himself at the wrong place at the right wrong time. And he's with some friends and uh, they break in and enter and this and that and they get caught by the owner of the property and he, he, he's confused and he doesn't know what to do and he finds a weapon and next thing he knows there's blood splat all, splattered all over his clothes. He panics, he freaks out, he runs to his brother and knocks on his door. His brother opens the door and says, what happened? And, and he breaks down and starts crying. His brother pulls him into the house, closes the door, locks the door, says, what happened? What happened? He's, and, he, and he breaks down and cries, tells him the whole story. He tells him, okay, quick, quick, you know, take your clothes off, jump into the shower, I'll go grab you some, some other clothes. He grabs him some of his clothes from his closet and, and he gives it to him. And as, as his brother's in the, in the shower, there's a knock at the door and the police are knocking at the door. And the, the brother who is not involved in this realizes that some, somebody, somebody has to go through the natural process that happens when you get caught. So before opening the door, he takes the blood-stained clothes and he puts them on. He opens the door and he's taken away. And that's what God has done for us to love us. So we'll end there. And uh, from here, we'll, we have just another video clip, something a little bit more lighthearted to end on. And, um, and then we'll uh, jump into our discussions. This is a clip from The Lion King um, uh, showing Mufasa's death. So uh, as we're pulling it up, I'll, uh, I, I always uh, remember my grade 11 English teacher telling me there's nothing in English literature in popular movies, in anything that doesn't find its origins either in scripture or in Greek mythology, except for a few things in Shakespeare. And that's why Shakespeare was such a genius. So here we go. You'll see the, the ultimate similarities between this clip and the stuff we've been talking about. Enjoy. Enjoy.